Hello, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I talk about a new paper on the determinants of digital therapeutics. Along the way, we talk about the CIFR, the dishonesty of behavioral economics, studying what you're bad at, funnel plots, the wordiness of undergraduates, and unintended consequences. I think you're really going to like today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. everybody and welcome to that implementation science podcast i'm mike pullman and i'm kevin king and today we have no guest at all all that we're going to do today is talk about a recent article that came up that both of us found really really interesting about digital therapeutics within health systems and as kevin and i know digital therapeutics uh, have become increasingly popular and they express themselves in a lot of different ways yeah. And, uh, you know, as I might say in an uh, introduction to an undergraduate paper, uh, more and more digital therapeutics are becoming popular uh, year after year for some vague, <laughs> some vague statement about how there's more of this stuff. So this is a really cool paper from the Journal of Medical Internet Research. It's, I, I will say, as an aside, I find it ironic that uh, 20 years ago, we would have made fun of anything that was on the internet and had the word internet in it because internet sort of meant sketchy and weird. <laughs> oh, you got that from the internet, did you? And now we're yeah. like studying it and there's journals yeah. of medical internet yeah. research. This well, is not, by the way, Dr. Theory. Google. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, not a theory, a prediction that in uh, 30 years from now, there are only going to be two sets of journals. One will be the Journal of Medical Medical Internet Research and all of its sub-journals. And then the other one will be Frontiers and all of its sub-journals. And those will be the only two journals out there. Yeah, it will be the, the um, agglomeration and consolidation of scientific publishing. Um, exactly. I, I will also say, I, I would just want to remind our readers, this is a legitimate, real journal. This is not a spam journal. I know when you think of medical internet research, you're usually <laughs> thinking of like Googling my symptoms to find out like, am I in respiratory distress or is this just a cold? But no, this is a really great journal that um, I, I've read I, I don't of, know. Wait, 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 wait. They've published some of my research, so you might want to walk back that really great journal comment. Yes, fair enough. Okay, this is a um, uh, acceptable journal for <laughs> those of us with lesser uh, uh, scientific abilities and knowledge. But I will say this article then, relative to Mike's work that has been published here, is, is a standout, at least relative <laughs> to what I know about Dr. Pullman's research. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the, the first author is Robin Van Kessel from uh, the London School of Economics um, and Political science in London, United Kingdom. I believe they have some famous bridges and clock towers over there. I don't know much else. <laughs> yeah, uh, and they also have, yes, and they also love um, uncarbonated ales uh, kept at room temperature in a barrel in the back and they get very, very cellar temperature about uh, room temperature beers. The first author is uh, Robin Van Kessel and the paper is titled Mapping Factors That Affect the Uptake of Digital Therapeutics Within Health Systems, Scoping Review. Now, this paper has a colon in it, so you know that it's serious. <laughs> um, so I should have said that again. Mapping Factors That Affect the Uptake of Digital Therapeutics Within Health Systems, colon, Scoping Review. Now, uh, the first thing to know is this is a scoping review. This is one kind of systematic review as opposed to other kinds of reviews where we have narrative reviews and systematic reviews and meta-analyses. Now, Mike, do you want to um, explain to listeners what a scoping review is and what the goal of it is? Sure. Well, I have to say so, I could not. Yeah. I'm not an expert on this, but this is the way they described it in the paper. And so if they're wrong, please you know, keep that opinion to yourself. The um, uh, scoping review, as they defined it, is essentially uh, a, a broad review of the literature, a broad scan of the literature, where you essentially do deep reads until you reach saturation, and, and basically until you're not uncovering any new information as you read it. However, the way they described it, it did sound like they did in-depth reviews of all of the papers that, that they found that met criteria. A meta-analysis usually entails 
coding the articles across a wide variety of domains and in particular coding any sort of like effect sizes that may have occurred if it's an intervention type of study or any other statistical, statistical parameters that may emerge uh, you know maybe you're doing a meta-analysis of like the size of something right and so that wouldn't be an effect size but maybe you know the height of something or whatever, I don't know what it would be, but um, and essentially a meta-analysis then weights that data based on the size of the study, and you can weight it by other things as well, like how many people are in the study, as well as like the quality of the study, and you can get a robust average effect size. And you also look at like moderating factors across those papers. So it's much more statistical, much more uh, much more involved in that, in that way versus a systematic review, I would say is like a school is like between those two extremes, right? So in a systematic review, you'll be probably doing a little bit of coding, but you're not going to be looking at like average effect sizes or anything like that. And you're trying to come up with general um, principles or uncover conclusions that can be drawn across multiple studies uh, in a very systematic way. That sounds it sounds like the way they define scoping review here is that in scoping review, you might stop after you stop and you, know, you stop your review after you're not really uncovering anything new. Right. So maybe a difference with a scoping review is you go until you get what you're not getting new information, like you right. said, versus a systematic review or a meta-analysis. You're trying to capture the whole sense of a literature. That's my understanding. Um, yeah. I'll say one thing I liked about this paper in general, and one thing I liked the idea, about the idea of scoping reviews is that we're not dependent on the kind of barriers that a lot of published research um, faces in terms of statistical evidence thresholds for publication. So one critique of meta-analysis that has come out um, or that has sort of become more prominent over time, um, there I am again, but I, it is true that people were not saying this 10 years ago. Uh, I don't think, and, and now I'm happy- More and more over time as we look <laughs> forward into the future. Is that meta-analysis, because they rely on the published literature, and you know, even though you can try to get at what people call the gray literature, these sort of unpublished literature, they're really biased to the degree that the published literature itself is biased towards publish, um, publishing only significant results. And so there's a lot of, lot of evidence and a lot of work trying to understand, a lot of evidence that meta-analyses themselves don't produce really strong pooled estimates, and they frequently leave out um, uh, non-significant findings. And there's, you know, large dramatic examples of that, like meta-analyses of say the ego depletion literature, the idea that the more you use self-control, the weaker it gets within you. You know, there's famous funnel plots of that. So a funnel plot is where you plot the effect size by sample, by sample size. And what you should see in a, in a robust literature is a funnel plot that is wide at the bottom when the sample sizes are small. In other words, in small samples, you're going to get a wide range of effect sizes. And as your samples get bigger, you should be converging closer to the truth. And if the sample, if the funnel plot is asymmetrical, and often they're asymmetrical in the bias towards significant findings, that is an evidence of a biased literature. But even those theoretically are, are unreliable. So I, that's all to say, given that I've become someone who's relatively skeptical of meta-analyses, given what I think are the problems in the published literature, it's nice to see something like this. That is from the way I read it is something like, let's just see what people are saying about this topic. Let's uh, do kind of, like you said, a qualitative analysis where we understand like, what are the themes? What are the ideas that are out there? Um, which to me, again, not being an expert, it seems like as an outsider, there's a lot fewer problems with publication bias and stuff. I mean, you know, and these, this group, the the uh, papers they're citing, they're pulling things from viewpoints and literature reviews and commentaries and editorials and qualitative articles and case reports, mixed methods. I mean, all kind, a really wide variety of articles, which I, I think is also cool because you're sort of getting a, a sense of the tenor of the conversation. I don't know what your thoughts on, on uh, were that. I just, that st stood out to me. No, totally. It can be really helpful. Yeah. In fact, I just did one recently. Uh, in fact, it was led by Isabel uh, Griffith Filippo, who I work with, who we did a scoping review. Actually, it was a rapid evidence scoping review uh, to try to find out, a, you know, an answer to one question, which is what are the barriers and facilitators to youth using digital mental health services, in particular videos in, in mental health? So it's actually kind of related to this where, you know, we did the same thing. We pulled tons yeah. of articles, but then once we found a 
we found a systematic review out there on this almost the very top, the, same, the very same topic. So we pulled all of the papers they cited there, and then we were done. We stopped looking after that because somebody yeah. had already done the work for us. It was a recent systematic review, and that was our scoping review. We felt like we had what we needed. We had a good, robust literature, and we weren't going to keep digging. And we were able to do that in like a week, two weeks, nice. something yeah. like that, very quickly. So, so Mike, what are the barriers to youth using videos? Because I, I think as a as a parent and as someone who's around parents, I think the problem that parents have is that youth won't stop watching videos. So what's, what's, why is there even an issue here, Mike? Yeah, good question, man. Now you're, now you're asking me to remember the research I do and that I can't do for you. <laughs> no, that's, that's all right. I, so I think, yeah. So, so what these, what these, uh, these authors did was, you know, they have a systematic search strategy. They, uh, they had a series of search terms and they pulled really from a really broad array of literature, interestingly, only ten percent published before two thousand fourteen. This is a this is a twenty twenty three paper, I believe, and so this is really recent, you know, a review a review of a really recent idea. And they do did you know did a, a typical systematic search using you know appropriate keywords, and came up with two hundred forty four studies. Um, or 204 documents, actually, 95% of which were scientific articles. Six of these 2.5% were organizational reports. Um, two of them were actually health assessed, health technology assessment fr- uh, frameworks, and two were web pages. Again, this is, I just think that's kind of cool that they're really grabbing information from a broad array of um, literature out there. Interestingly, 25% of the, what they cite were literature reviews themselves. And so they, they looked at all of these studies and they identified themes um, that were uh, barriers and facilitators of the implementation of digital health therapeutics. And they talked through the themes in terms of the implementation frameworks idea, the CIFR, um, you- Consolidated Framework for Implementation Research. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm so sorry to interrupt. I do want to point out one thing for our kind of younger listeners or our more junior listeners. Two things they did, uh, because I'm always surprised by this, the number of research assistants that come into our lab that are actually not familiar with this. So they they put this all into end note uh, all these citation software programs exist please use them <laughs> and note is one zotero is one zotero is free and you can do it on uh, online in the cloud and share you know share among with others i think i noticed like that now too and there's others and one of the things that's really nice about it, they put them all into there and then they could identify any duplicates they found and they could identify those very easily because they were done by the program and the other thing they used is something i haven't used yet but became i became aware of when we did our recent um scoping review this last summer which is something called covidence and I think there are a few other programs that exist. And what these programs actually do, they're for conducting systematic reviews or scoping reviews, and maybe even meta-analyses, I'm not sure. Um, and they actually extract data from the articles themselves and do some synthesis work itself by like pulling abstracts, etc. So I do encourage those of uh, you who are sort of newer to the field to definitely look into these applications. So I'm sorry to interrupt. You were talking yeah. about how they... Um, they used the CIFR uh, yes. as their as their coding. They did they did directed coding, which means you take a uh, you take an existing um, framework and you code based on that framework, as right. opposed to content as opposed to just like open content coding, which is you just start from scratch. You don't have a framework you're working off of. Right, and, and you know the advantage of this is the consolidated framework for implementation research or CIFR uh, gives folks a way to think about you know what part of an implementation process uh, you can sort of fit themes into. So they talked about, they they sort of clustered them in the relevant domains of inner and outer settings, individuals, and innovation. In this case, they sort of identify factors together for the inner and outer settings. So the the setting, and and Mike, correct me where I'm wrong, the inner and outer setting is just the, is the uh, organizational and environmental context in which you're implementing uh, some intervention and individual will be the person level factor. So it would be like, you know, characteristics of the patient who might be using the digital therapeutic or the characteristics of the provider who might be characteristics of the provider. It. Traditionally, yeah. it was the characteristics of the provider. In fact, the CIFR, and we'll post this on our on our show notes. The CIFR just came out with an update because for the longest time, and this never made any sense to me, the characteristics of individual patients or clients or people that are being served, they were putting that in the outer setting, which made no sense to me. Uh, but in the new update, they've moved it to uh, the uh, inner setting and to there's a. Um, I think it's called individuals is another 
Um, let's see, what's the other domain? Yeah, individuals, domains, and inner setting. And and the re- I think the reason that it was in sort of the outer setting is because they were thinking of the system. And so when they would talk about clients, they'd talk about like, provider perceptions of clients right um and that was in the inner setting prior to this most recent update right and so i I actually can just sort of summarize for you how they classified these different things so they they talked about distinguish they talk about distinguish and and they clustered this according to i'm gonna i'm gonna say this wrong and i'm so sorry for ahead of time uh obedient right never read that word before don obedient quality framework which is cool. They, they talk about distinguishing between structure, process, and outcome. So yeah. structure are uptake factors that describe the physical, institutional, organizational context in which care is delivered. So they talk about like the context of the policy or the context of the demographics of sort of the target population. And then they talk about distinguished with process where they talk about the transactional uptake factors of digital therapeutics. So like, you know, what do people think about these things? How do people perceive them thinking about the process between the the patient and the professional delivering it? And then they talk about outcome measures, which are the direct indirect effects of therapeutics on the healthcare ecosystem. That's right. And one thing I noticed here, I had never, well, I think maybe I had heard of Donna Beaton, but I couldn't remember. Anyway, so they mentioned those three, but I looked up that paper because I was really fascinated by this this um, uh, way of classifying outcomes. I think this is a really nice way of classifying outcomes. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, as you know, Kevin, I'm really interested in unintended consequences, right? So Donna Beaton does have a fourth outcome measure that they didn't mention in this paper we're called mm-hmm. balancing measures, which is unintended and wider consequences. Uh, for instance, emergency care readmission rates following initiatives to reduce length of stay. Mm-hmm. And we always know, and you're, you know, I, I talk about this a lot on the podcast and I'm going to keep talking about it because of my favorite topics because we often, we don't know what we don't know. And oftentimes in our, um, in our implementation approaches and our strategies, they do result in unintended consequences that we weren't paying attention to because we oftentimes have innovation bias. We think what we're going to do is going to be wonderful, and we don't think about all those possible ripple effects that may occur to others. Um, so anyway, but in this paper, you're right. They're, they're only mentioning and describing right. and coding as to the three uh, initial domains in the Donabedon quality framework. Well, I mean, I think that's an important point, Mike. It, it harkens back to our um, wonderful conversation with Lisa Saldana, where she referenced thinking about you know, when you're implementing anything new, it's easy to focus on the benefits. Oh, how this is going to change providers' lives. This is going to be better for patients. We forget about the cost, the cost of learning some new process. The you know, and, and you could imagine with digital therapeutics, there there is a cost to you know learning some new system, creating a new username, and remembering your password for the system, and you know, integrating it into your patient flow, um, or, you know, and there also could be opportunity costs. Let's say a, you know, the National Health Service says, okay, everybody who has depression, you're first going to get this digital therapeutic. And if that doesn't work for you, then you're going to go a step up. Well, my guess is that one cost of, you know, sort of structured approach like that might be some people who get the digital therapeutic who really need a higher level of intervention just will give up. They'll just drop out before they actually get to that level. I'm not saying that's what's happening. I'm just, you know, you could imagine that you might have opportunity costs when, you know, and you could see systems saying we're going to go digital and maybe missing some opportunities for more intensive healthcare. Um, again, I'm just saying this is as an imaginary, but it, I, yeah. I do think even though this isn't reviewed in this paper, it's important to be thinking about this sort of stuff to sort of combat our native bias towards innovation, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the big ones in digital therapeutics may be a sense from the patient's perspective of a lack of personalization that, oh, okay, my therapist is just trying to put me on another app. Um, and, you know, they have the, the same sense occurs with medication, you know, and these are unintended consequences. Therapists are trying to help. They're trying to prescribe things that work, whether that's a medication or, or a digital therapeutic, but it may uh, result in a, feel, a feeling of kind of not being connected to the healthcare system and may even result in people not being willing to go back to the healthcare system when their problems persist. Right. Yeah. Why would you go back if you feel like you went and you asked for help and you got something that didn't felt like it worked for you? In fact, the importance of personalization according to patient needs and preferences is mentioned here as a critical factor in implementation. But, you know, before we dive in, I know we've dove, we've dove in, we've dove (laughs) in a little bit. Can you tell our audience, what is a digital therapeutic? Because they give a really specific definition here that I think might not be clear to people who are not already in this space. 
They define digital therapeutics as, quote, a specific subset of the overarching digital health landscape that generate and deliver clinically validated medical interventions and are used as part of a clinical treatment pathway for various health conditions. As a result, they can be regulated and prescribed, although I think this only is really happening in other countries. I'm not sure if they're fully being prescribed in the United States quite yet. I have not heard that here, but I would know. They can be regulated and prescribed as therapeutics or medical devices, which distinguishes them from more generic digital health applications in the well-being and lifestyle space. So you have things like um, like Calm, for instance, which is a digital tool that is pretty wonderful, helps people learn about breathing and mindfulness, et cetera. I would think that they might put that in this kind of more generic digital health applications because I don't believe I could be wrong about this, but I don't believe Calm has been sort of proven to work to the extent that uh, an insurance company or the federal government would regulate them and an insurance company would approve that to be prescribed as a therapeutic. Yeah, it seems like they're they're putting these digital therapeutics at a level like many other medical devices where there's both a higher evidentiary standard yeah. for you know their their supposed efficacy then also you know which exposes them both to uh, stronger regulations but also stronger financial incentives like you know reimbursement yeah. for for the use and um and even probably referrals from insurance companies and medicaid yeah. and medicare you can imagine yeah. and yeah. I, I know we may be jumping ahead a little bit but those are these are like the major factors that they found that determined as barriers and facilitators of whether or not these things uh had uptake Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's w- when they start talking about internet or settings, you know, um, the first thing they talk about is um, uh, the financing model is really important, right? So how does it fit into the financing model of how the healthcare system works? And they they actually identify or speculate that you may see more uptake uh, in, of digital therapeutics in multi-payer health systems, like they they note the United States and the Netherlands, places where there's sort of multiple companies sort of competing for healthcare dollars, and they they argue that there's somewhat less uh, of that in single-payer systems uh, because of sort of there's lower pressure to innovate now. You know that sounds a little bit like a uh, neoliberalism, capitalism, every, as everything kind of argument. I I won't speculate on whether you know whether that's true or not, but it. It's interesting, and I think it's important to think about, um, you know, which if you're an app developer, you probably just want to help people, right? You may not be thinking about who's going to pay for this. How does this fit within the overall architecture of the healthcare system? You know, are there going to be reimbursement codes for you? They mentioned reimbursement codes as as being really important. And, And they emphasize the importance of thinking about funding throughout the research lifecycle, right? So not just funding your app while you're developing it, but once it goes out in the world, how is it going to get paid for? How is it going to get updated? How is it yeah. going to get maintained? You can't, you know, as any software developer will know, which maybe not many of our audiences, but you can't just create software or hardware and throw it out in the world and let it sit. You got to constantly maintain it. You got to, you know, it's uh, people's phones keep updating, you know, versions break, things, you know, things stop working or things have bugs. You're, there's going to have to be money behind it. And so thinking about these financial considerations, they, yeah. they identify as really important. Well, I mean, when you talk about barriers and facilitators, again, just massive, massive, massive implications. And I think uh, this is exactly the type of thing that implementation science gets really excited about. So I'm currently working with a company that provides therapy via either video based, you know, like you can chat with your therapist online and see their face, uh, or or you could text your therapist, or there's some where you can do a little bit of both. When we first began working with that company, it was largely private pay that uh, it was the market they were going after. And it was 90, with people could choose, 90% of them were choosing text-based therapy. Now, text was a little cheaper huh. than video-based plans, but they were, but 90% were choosing text. And I thought this is really, I think this is really fascinating. So when you look at what people want and what they prefer, they wanted that, like, I could contact my therapist at any time and they'll come, they'll contact me back within a few hours, maybe. I can say as much as I want. I can, I can, I can contact them when I need it, when I'm in the moment versus the kind of, and if you look at the texting, it's about an hour's worth of exchange each week that therapists actually have. So it's about an hour's worth of therapy that adds up about the same. 
But this and asynchronous we, mode works for people really well, mm -hmm. as opposed and to like scheduling a video chat, right? Is, that's right. The asynchronous ones mode can work really, really well. And then uh, we found some recent research. Uh, we've done some recent research with, with them. I'm not sure if this is published quite yet, but finding that the improvement rates, whether you're doing text-based or video-based, are about the same. There doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be any difference. Um, and not even like a trend in one direction of one being better than the other, right. which is pretty fantastic. So all these Gen Zers and millennials who don't want to answer the phone or do video chats and just want to text with us anymore. Yeah. They're right. They're onto something. Right. But you know what's happened over the last three years, two years since COVID, mm -hmm. since uh, all of a sudden a lot more insurance companies have approved video-based therapy. Mm. Now they're no longer going after that private pay market. And now they're 90% video-based and 10% oh. text-based. Because while some insurance companies do cover text, not as many of them do, mm -hmm. and a they are changing the rules constantly on what uh, what's defined as text, how many texts are appropriate, mm. and and it's become a little bit of a regulatory nightmare for these companies because they have to wade through each different insurance company's um, requirements around these things. And it's like, why do that? You know, um, and so it is fascinating how these kind of characteristics can can change the uh, demand and the utilization of these technologies so rapidly. And I think it's kind of sad too because I do think there's a lot to be said about text-based therapies. I want, you know, I want to see if they work or not. We want to do the research mm -hmm. to really see whether or not they work well or not, but they could really open up therapy to a lot of people and remove a lot of barriers. Um, and, and yet the way that insurance is structured right now, people aren't getting access to them and we're not able to test that as well as we'd like to otherwise. Yeah. No, people, I mean, people love texting. I've actually been trying to convince you to do this podcast as text message only, but I know you're <laughs> resistant somehow to it. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I just don't it, see how it would work, Kevin. Again, you got to be innovative, Mike. You got to think about the future. <laughs> everything is text message, everything. Um, I, you know, I, it also makes me think of, you know, prior examples from research and history where insurance company reimbursement rates or state reimbursement rates can really drive. Even things like like who gets diagnosed with what, yeah. you know, like uh, the there is evidence I recall and I vaguely recall it. So don't you know cite me on this um, that rates of autism in some states shot way up once you could have autism as a diagnostic code yeah. to get services in school. And when it changed from I think it was like broader intellectual disability to a specific reimbursement for autism for services for treatment, autism diagnoses sort of shot up. And it, you know, and a lot of this is just people finding ways to get the treatment they want in a way that's affordable for them. So it's, it's not at all surprising that as soon as video gets reimbursed and all of a sudden everybody wants video because uh, why wouldn't you? It's economic, right? It's, it's, it's simple economics, yep. not behavioral economics, by the way. That's regular economics. We're, we're not fabricating data here. Is behavioral economics, does that fabricate data? Okay. Mike, you haven't heard about what's going on in behavioral I, economics? I have no idea. There's a whole sequence of papers on the subject of dishonesty that have had to be retracted because it turns out there is evidence that the data were fabricated. Now, I, I we don't know who <laughs> fabricated them. Um, and it, it's so bad that in one study, one famous study that said this was this was the idea that, oh, if you get people to sign an honesty pledge at the top of a paper versus the bottom of a paper, that they are less likely to lie. This was something <laughs> like a five-study paper, and it turns out two of the data sets, two of the studies were separately, separately have evidence of fabrication. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. So hey, it's man, really this... not looking good for okay. paper economics right now, man. I have argued for years that psychologists study the thing they're worst at, which is why I study community engagement and you study alcohol. <laughs> hey, I'm very good at drinking alcohol. <laughs> All right. Where so, are we at? I've, I've lost the thread of this. Thing. No, we have. Um, well, so, you know, the other thing we were, so we were talking about financing and reimbursement codes and how the, the you know, one of the outer setting elements they identify is who pays for it and where's the money come from? And I think the other thing that I, I they, they identify a whole bunch of other factors. One other thing I noticed, though, was they, they highlight the availability of testing environments so that health professionals can gain experience with digital therapeutics and including digital therapeutic modules in medical curricula. And you'd imagine, depending on, you know, in psychological training, you know, uh, therapy training curricula as well. I, I, and these were identified as uh, facilitators in the uptake of digital therapeutics, right? So if you have, if you are in the medical profession or have any loved ones in the medical profession, you'll probably hear 
terrible story is about <laughs> their medical record system. Sorry for that big while. Uh, let me try that again. Mm-hmm. If you have loved ones in the medical profession or you're in the medical profession, you'll probably have, you know, nightmarish stories about their medical record systems, about all the different challenges of it. And, you know, if you've been to a doctor or a healthcare provider recently, you probably have the experience of them doing your whole appointment, whether sitting at their computer or typing notes and filling in boxes and stuff. And so you could imagine, you know, from the experience or from the perspective of a provider who's already inundated with difficult to use challenging medical record systems and just, you know, digital systems in general, you come along with your therapeutic, you know, your digital therapeutic for your one intervention that they're going to use for some small portion of their patients. Some of the time, in some cases, you better make sure that it's easy for them to use, that it's integrated and streamlined, you know, with the rest of their systems that, you know, you you just got to think about these you know, um, uh, usability barriers that are, you know, that your providers are going to face before they're even ready to deliver them to their patients. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, patients oftentimes will have to then do essentially their own sort of double data entry. It's like, now I have to tell the app everything about myself. I already told everything to the provider and that's a barrier. Um, Then the systems themselves trying to integrate, as you mentioned, across these different apps, privacy concerns that are real concerns sometimes these are sometimes these are private companies that develop these tools usually they are are they selling that data to somewhere else you know in order to keep their um to keep their doors open right you know there's there's all sorts of barriers that happen once you start talking about this kind of these different streams and inflows and outflows of information yeah yeah and you know i think people are as much as on the one hand, all of us are have probably gotten used to giving away all of our digital data because we're all signing terms of services that we're not reading. I do think people are increasingly aware and skeptical of what you know private companies are doing with our data. You know, I think um, uh, I just think yeah, there's this tremendous amount of skepticism in, in my lab. We um, recently finished data collection where we were using a um, passive sensing app that sort of gather as much data as it could from people's mobile devices, from Androids and iPhones. Um, Things like accelerometer data, things like app usage, you know, how often people are opening apps and switching apps. We didn't even record, like, we're not recording texts, we're not recording phone calls, we're not getting the content of anything, just what sensors are doing, number of, you know, how many Bluetooth devices are you around, what kind of Wi-Fi connections, GPS. When we pitched this to our, our participants, you may said, hey, we have this extra part of the study, if you want to participate, you know, let us know. Got a lot of pushback. We got a lot of people who were sort of not interested, worried about what we were going to do with the data. And I will say one of the things that helped us get higher uptake from our participants was to point out, you know, the private companies are already getting all these data. Google and Apple are collecting from this this from you constantly. We're actually only getting some of what data they're collecting uh, for you. And we're going to try to do research with it for right. good. And we're bound and we're bound by ethical guidelines. Yeah. We're not advertising anything to you except, hey, you know, participate in our study some more. But but I do think you know it was and, and if you don't give it to us we're just going to lie about the data anyway. Yeah. We're just going to, everything's going to be significant at barely 0.05. And trust <laughs> me, all of our hypotheses will be confirmed. Um, well, so, so to move on from the, the, the uh, outer setting and, and setting domains, they also talk a lot about how patients are impacted and what patients are most likely to uptake digital therapeutics. What was striking to you or what did you notice about this sort of, if you know, you could characterize a prototypical person Who's going to use yeah. a digital therapeutic? It's, you know, all the stuff actually that we've been finding in, in some of the studies. So I've been involved in, I'm involved in studies with three different uh, companies right now uh, or organizations that are doing this work. And it's all, this is all very consistent with what we found. So people who use digital therapeutics are more likely to be younger. Uh, they have better language skills, higher education levels, higher health literacy, more likely to be employed, higher income, more likely to live in an, uh, in an urban environments. So people with access, uh, people have that have means. And I think some of this is obviously due to, you know, you have to own the phone or you have to have access to a phone, Wi-Fi. Um, you have to have some um, sophistication with these things. Uh, it helps if you have access to healthcare in general. All, all yeah. this is, um, you know, uh, the domain of people who tend to be a little bit more privileged or a little more technolo- technologically savvy. Mike, Mike, the only pushback I'd have on that is yeah. everybody has phones. 98% of people have phones these days. And in fact, for lower income people, 
there's evidence that suggests that phones become their lifeline because the yeah, phone and yeah. the internet is absolutely the way that they stay in touch with the world such that I, you know, I understand lots of unhoused people have, have phones. So I think that's one sort of common, you know, 10 years ago, that was not as true. Um, yeah. But it's something that, yeah, as someone who does lots of phone-based research, I definitely think, but I, I think all your other points stand that I think, you know, general health literacy, right? Think about people who struggle with understanding, you know, um, health terminology and understanding how to follow medicine regimens, you know, and there's lots of people out there who suffer because of low health literacy. And then we want to add an app on top of it for people who mm -hmm. might, you know, they might have a phone, but they're not 100% tech literate, right? Mm -hmm. right. Um, I, I think that is important to think about. Yes, yeah, certainly. That's what I was going to say earlier is that like, you know, those old, that old Sherman Williams ad where it has like the big paint can that has the world and the paint is dropping on the world and says something like we cover the world or whatever. And the, you know, it's like all the paint is dripping down over the earth. Mm. That's, that's not what technology access and use and literacy is like for people. So you're right. A lot of people have phones, but those gaps for people who don't yeah. have phones are in certain areas. They're in right. high poverty areas there and, and they're older people as well. And oftentimes it's these older people that are really struggling with mental and physical health challenges that these apps could be beneficial right. for. And, um, my, and just my, owning a phone doesn't mean you're going to be, you know, that using an app is going to be easy for you, or there's going to be something right. you're going to, you know, um, want to do. In fact, I remember, again, I can't cite it, but I remember seeing somewhere that um, a vast majority of apps are open once or twice and then never yeah. again. That actually getting Absolutely. people to open an app and actually use it repeatedly is a real challenge. Absolutely. And what else do we know that people only use once or twice and then never go back to large chunks of people? Their graduate statistic training? <laughs> yes. Yes. What else? Just like regular um, therapy, right? Oh, Most yeah, regular people therapy. There go, you go to regular therapy a, a modal amount of one or two times, and they don't like their therapist. They never show up again. So oftentimes this is used as, as a, for why apps aren't good or whatever. Most people don't use them. And that's very true and very consistent with mental health treatment in general. I guess you know, that's you true. At, you look at school-based therapy, it's one time. Like that's yeah. when like 60% of the people go one time. Mike, if it was one or two times technically, though, yeah. wouldn't that be the bimodal? That's true. That's true. Um, there is, um, thank you for that clarification. I think our, our listener, because we're at, by this point in this, in this particular episode, we have one listener. listener. Yeah. Uh, they'll be very happy to hear that. Hi, Stephanie. Um, <laughs> thanks, Steph. Yeah. There's actually a really cool study done by, um, by Tim Altoff, who I work with, uh, called, it's called like I'll be back. And it's about the many lives of um, digital health usage. And these are for, I don't think they would classify these as, maybe some of them are digital therapeutics, but largely it's apps that, you know, are maybe not evidence-based. Um, but yeah, they, they find the same thing is that people use them a few times, but actually they do tend to cycle. Like most people, it's like oftentimes people tend to cycle mm -hmm. and they come back in. So they use it for a little while. They find it helpful. Maybe a meditation mm -hmm. app because you're going through a particularly stressful time. You right. leave it on your phone and you come back to it and you use it some more. And that can be a good thing. So, uh, so even though we recognize the fact that people aren't using them oftentimes a lot, then that, that's one aspect to it. The other thing is like they might, oftentimes people are just trying different apps on. So right. they'll do, they'll, they'll use one app a couple of times and they'll delete it and find a new yeah. one and they'll delete that until they get the one that they really like. And yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and I guess to your point um, about people cycling or coming back and, you know, uh, I could see there's a lot of evidence on single session interventions, right? That, that sometimes for some people, sometimes all you need is once. And I think that's, that's an important sort of uh, thing to, to keep in mind. Um, so, you know, so they talk a lot about individual factors as well as cultural and social factors that influence the uptake. So really thinking, really suggest thinking about who your target audience is and how can you broaden your target audience from people who might be sort of ready and willing and able to quickly up, you know, pick up an app and try it out. Seems like you could get a lot of benefit if you're really targeting, you know, if you really think about, okay, well, how can we target the people for whom this might not, you know, make immediate sense and might not be directly inclined, but maybe benefit tremendously from it? How do you design and think about your app from that perspective? That seems like a takeaway for me that if I was developing apps, I'd want to be really thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And they actually encourage this kind of use of human-centered design when developing mm -hmm. these things. Uh, you know, we had uh, Aaron Lyon on the on the show uh, not, not too long ago, and he focuses a lot on human-centered design for interventions. And actually, I 
Yeah, so for instance, there's this wonderful paper uh, with David Moore as the first author and Aaron Lyon and superfan Stephen Schuler. It's called Accelerating Digital Mental Health Research from Early Design and Creation to Successful Implementation and Sustainment. They actually don't mention it, I don't think, in this uh, scoping review, unfortunately. But but it really talks about how you can apply some of these techniques uh, to digital mental health technology. Yeah. So just moving through the paper, Mike, I see they also talk about, I guess this would be the individual factors, the health professionals. What are key factors about um, health professionals in terms of, of what impacts up, you know, impacts uptake here? And they talk, again, similar demographic characteristics, right? Yet younger people with more digital literacy um, and connectivity, um, those things t- seem to be key um, key factors as well as their attitudes towards familiarity with and trust in digital therapeutics. So you really got to have people who are already on board. Um, and if not, that seems like you'd want an intervention to figure out um, how to get it, how to get them on board. And they also talk about process mechanisms, right? So like, can you incorporate these well into their process? And uh, a little bit about trust too, right? They, there are some factors they mention that they health professionals want to see these uh, therapeutics uh, approved by their individual institutional or social environment, as well as accredited or endorsed by some sort of accredited body. So, you know, there's a trust issue. And you can imagine if you're somebody who already has a busy workflow, you know, you're at, you're asked to add something new, you've already figured out your work process, but then somebody's like, hey, try this out. You know, you're going to want a high, you're going to you have maybe you have a high bar to be convinced to try something out. You're not just going to be throwing something else in without really believing and trusting it. And then also having it feel like it's going to be easy for you. You know what? One thing I noticed here that I'd be interested in your thoughts on as I was reading through the health professionals, you know, barriers and facilitators. Mm-hmm. I read this and I thought, oh, this is true of every intervention. Like this is a this is an awesome, awesome review of what therapist characteristics or implementer characteristics drive implementation for practically any for practically any type of thing. And I didn't I couldn't figure out what in here set digital therapeutics apart. And maybe nothing does. And that's kind of an interesting thing, kind of an interesting, interesting commentary by itself. Yeah, I actually think you're right. I mean, so take, you know, so my interest, uh, one of my research interests is in how do people learn new quantitative methods and how do new quantitative methods get implemented in the world? And, you know, who are, who are the people that are most resistant to trying out new methods? It's usually those of us faculty who are older and have already figured out how we do to do the quant we want to do. And the people that are driving innovations, like in my lab, are my young trainees, right? They're out there learning new methods. They're saying, hey, we have to use this you know, Bayesian count count model for, you know, our multi-level data when I'm like, I was very, very happy just using HLM. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I think that, you know, they, they, they're more flexible. They're learning the latest and greatest methods. They're, they, they don't have a rigidity in the work process. You know, um, they're also, they're set in different norm environments, like the early trainees and early career researchers, you know, their normative environment is not just the larger scientific institution, but it's also their peers and their peers are different than our, you know, the peers of, of us who are sort of ancient, decrepit and stuck in our ways. So, no, I, I mean, I, I, I could even see all of these factors as being uh, influential in even the implementation of, of methods, which I think is as far away from digital therapeutics as you can maybe get. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, I think it's a really good insight, Mike. I like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, such a great point. So they talk, they also talk about the innovation domain, and they talk specifically around characteristics of digital therapeutics and manufacturer provision. So I thought this work was pretty interesting. And, um, you know, we already talked about this a, a little bit, and maybe... Did you already actually talk about this section? You didn't, right? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. We mentioned the idea of personalization. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they talk about how the design of the therapeutics uh, really needs to be driven by the needs and expectations of patients, and that those um, digital therapeutics need to be easy and straightforward to understand and use. Here's the really the crux of it for a lot of for developing these tools in a way you have to meet these standards of kind of basic usability. Mm -hmm. And that can mean when done well, when done half well, I guess, it can mean that you have a very stripped down digital therapeutic Mm. and streamlined digital therapeutic that can't provide 
all of the different complexities that might be provided when you were to take, if you were to take an entire um, therapeutic protocol like cognitive behavioral therapy and try to put it into an app. Now you can do, you can do that. I know there are apps that cover a lot of different types of areas of cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy, you know, cognitive restructuring and relaxation, psychoeducation, et cetera, et cetera. But um to do that well is really, really hard. And so oftentimes what you get is these kind of like single shooter apps that are really kind of good at one thing, um, but that um, in order to maintain usability, they lose some of the uh, effective complex complexity mm-hmm. that is usually retained in the expertise of a therapist who's delivering right. an intervention. Right. Well, you know, for example, um, as someone who's trained someone in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, I see there is a big difference between cognitive restructuring when you're doing it live with a therapist and cognitive restructuring when you give somebody a worksheet. Yeah. Right. So the way I think of, and again, this is, I wouldn't, you know, again, I think I feel like half this podcast is me saying, don't quote me. I'm probably wrong on this. <laughs> but when I do cognitive restructuring with a patient, I'm, my goal is to bring the, the automatic thoughts and the alternative thoughts and ha- bring their thought process out live. So if somebody was, somebody's in distress because they're worried about something, I want to hear that you know, as they're imagining or re- actually experiencing that distress, because I want them, you know, the, to me, the effective challenging of thoughts and having somebody thinking of alternatives is, is having them practice the re- cognitive restructuring while they're experiencing those thoughts live. And to some of, to some degree, th- there it takes an amount of empathy and it takes an amount of sort of live, you know, you, I keep saying live, you, you want them to be experiencing in the moment, the thoughts and the feelings together. And when you just give them a worksheet, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying everybody just giving them a worksheet does that. Sometimes you're giving them a worksheet and you're activating the thoughts and bringing it out. But if there's not that affective component, it, I don't know that worksheets are as effective. And, I, and I've trained a number of people who sort of first learned restructuring as worksheets and then learned how to do it sort of alive with a person. And I feel like the experience is, is different. So, uh, you know, I think part of the point is that translating from a real intervention to a digital one or a paper and pencil one, sometimes you can lose some of that complexity, even if on the surface, it looks like the same thing. That is such a great point. Okay, yeah. And so digital mental health tools can actually provide a whole array of uh, different approaches. So I I love what you're talking about right now, where you have worksheets on one hand, people Mm -hmm. fill in these blanks, or you have um, a therapist who can work with people in a more sophisticated fashion around um, cognitive restructuring. So Mental Health America has a tool called Overcoming Negative Thoughts, and it's kind of like a digital worksheet. And what's nice about that, that, what what that adds is that tool... um, People can, you know, fill in the blanks of the worksheet, but they also can see what other people are saying. So that's one level up that a worksheet can't provide. Mm-hmm. And also that maybe a therapist can't always provide, and it doesn't give that sort of feeling. My colleague, Tim Altoff, along with his graduate student, um, Ashish Sharma, and Inna Lin, they have created an AI assistant tool for Mental Health America. It's called Changing Thoughts with an AI Assistant. And it's very similar to the Overcoming Negative Thoughts. But with this tool, you enter, you know, the sort of negative thought that you're struggling with, or you can choose a common thought that other people have, it walks you through the restructuring of that thought. So, you know, asks you first, what's the situation that led to that thought? So we'll say, I'm a bad person is my negative thought. And a recent situation is that Kevin King interrupted me. And that led me to think I'm a bad person. And then it describes what sort of thinking traps are and it brings in this AI tool that helps people label those thinking traps because that can be overwhelming for people who don't know about uh, psychology. So another name for thinking traps is a cognitive distortion, right? Right. So um, labeling negative feelings or emotions or whatever. And it says that with 97% confidence that my statement that Kevin King interrupted me, uh, that the thinking trap there, that I'm a bad person, is um, an, uh, is a labeling thinking trap, right? And so that's that first step in sort of identifying that. It helps people identify, it helps people get through that first step in a way that's supported, well, in doing that with feedback, you know, and w- with sort of inter- the interactive component comes much closer to a therapist interaction. And, and like you said, but 
probably what's nice is that you can, somebody can help do it in the moment. Whereas in a therapy situation, we have to sort of help people recreate it. I also, yeah. well, in my defense to our listeners, yeah. I interrupted you with the statement, Mike, you're a bad person. So <laughs> I think it's a little That's bit true. more than 3% likely. That's true. And then the next thing that this tool does, so not only does it help people label it, then they check on whether that label is correct. Right. Then it allows them to uh, help them reframe their thinking. First describes what reframing is. So it's reframing my thinking and giving me a number of options I could consider. One of them is, so Kevin interrupted me, but that doesn't make me a bad person. I can speak up for myself and let him know that it's not cool to act that way. So AI gave us that. They also said, so Kevin King interrupted me, but that doesn't mean I'm mean or anything like that. Well, it might not mean that, but we all know I'm pretty mean. Yeah. No, you're, um, for example, using uh, a made-up example of me um, interrupting you on a podcast live to practice cognitive restructuring. So thanks, Mike. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it <laughs> continues to walk you through the tool. Now, that's something that, like, it would actually be pretty difficult for a therapist to do yeah. all of that in real time and in the same way. And I think, actually, through all of these, you can still see what other people have reported as well. So you can, like, mm-hmm. see how other people have walked through it. And it's definitely not something a worksheet could do. Um, so it really opens up a really uh, a wide array of approaches. Yeah. You know, one thing that to, to think about this, I mean, so when you're identifying sort of there's new opportunities for technology, what, you know, it just, it strikes me as a real challenge to, as like app development is way harder than I would have thought. Now that's anybody who's done apps probably thinks that's obvious, Kevin. Um, but, it, you know, from, I think the naive outsider perspective is, oh, we're just going to develop an app and throw it out in the world. And it's going to be great. But, you know, this is saying, well, look, your app has to be straightforward and easy, but it also has to be customizable. But it also has to have a really high standard of evidence that, any, yeah. you know, that a government agency, you know, is going to be willing to pay. Oh, it also has to have a lot of privacy concerns. Oh, it also has to be, you know, like not only really easy to use, but it should be attractive because you're competing with Facebook and Instagram, you know, that are developed by professional UX researchers. Oh, it also has to... Interoperate with all the other characteristics of the healthcare system. Oh, and your healthcare provider. I mean, it like, you know, has to be able to use it and it has to be integrated into your records. Like, that's a really tall bar um, for an app to reach. Yeah. And see, you know, and I'm not saying like again, I don't want to be skeptical of them. I love apps as much as anybody, but uh, I think what's I think an important takeaway from this article is you got to be thinking about much bigger picture and many, many more things than just like, what's the intervention we're going to develop? Because that almost is the least part of it. Like, yeah, that better work, but you got to think about so many other things before you actually really have a successful app deployment. Yeah. You know what I think we need to do? I think we need to identify all the most effective apps, train a person on how to do all that stuff. And we'll call that therapy, I guess. And then that person we could call a therapist, does that make sense? And then that person would deliver it. And then you don't have to worry about all, the, all these things. I don't know, man. I just don't see it. A person helping other people get better? That seems crazy. <laughs> um, you know, that actually does step us into one of the next sections of this paper, uh, which is the relative advantages of digital therapeutics. And so some of the findings that they uh, had in this paper that they identified as part of the scoping review were improvements in health outcomes and shorted, shortened disease duration through novel healthcare options. Faster diagnoses, I love that. The quicker you can diagnose someone, the quicker you can help them. A decrease in adverse mental, medical events, uh, improved monitoring of clinical and patient-reported outcome measures. Um, it also induced changes in quality of care, patient satisfaction, and diagnostic accuracy. Powered patients to have a more active role in their health care and further enable shared decision-making. And uh, have been shown to positively affect treatment adherence patient coping, health management abilities, and on and on. We know that it has impacts for patients. We know it has impacts for systems. and But we also know that it comes with all of these challenges that we were just describing in terms of trying to be everything for everyone. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the, um, but, but I think thinking about these relative advantages, keeping that in mind, it's got to be in the forefront, right? That you're, you, the reason we're do, people are doing this is because we think it can offer a way to provide healthcare to people in ways that work better for them and are going to get people help and help people get better who wouldn't have otherwise if they didn't have access to this. So I, I think I do think that's just important, you know, for for us to always be thinking about. Yeah. Yep, totally agree. One last thing I want to point out here that I just encourage everyone who's interested in this topic to go ahead and open up this paper and look at it because there's something we just cannot describe on 
uh, podcast, which is figure two, which they call their um, map of the factors that can affect uptake of digital therapeutics. And I really like, like the way they've displayed this. They have uh, used color to highlight what are the most common factors that were mentioned in papers, although they're very careful to describe that just because something's most commonly mentioned doesn't mean that it's the most important. And uh, they separate you know, these major factors into, as we described, the outer and inner settings domains, individuals domains, and innovations domains. And they encourage people who are considering the use of digital therapeutics to really think closely about these these factors um, uh, to increase the uptake in a way that you know has has good fidelity and effectiveness and I just really want to like the the authors did a really fantastic job I think um, putting all these together in a single sheet yeah no it's really nice it's it's sort of as a really good handy just a really simple guide for like okay what are the things I need to think about when I'm thinking about developing an app. So yeah, I, I think to conclude, I think this was, you know, this is a really comprehensive review. Um, I think it does a really nice job of, of outlining the factors that might be important when you're developing an app. And I think for it sort of, it feels like the first stop for anyone who has it in mind, I'm going to develop a digital therapeutic. I'm going to develop a digital intervention. It seems like if you really want to think about how do you help the most people with what you're developing, you probably want to start here. Maybe even, you know, once you have your idea, but before you've even tested it, start here and think about how is this going to interface? Where where might I face roadblocks or where am I going to have a competitive advantage? But before you even start investing a whole bunch of money into something that, you know, in the end might hit major roadblocks. Think about those roadblocks ahead of time. Again, it reminds me of our interview with Lisa Saldana, who says, look, you got to really think about your implementation before you start it. You really want to map out all the factors and all of the all get everybody on board who you want to get on board and think about all the things you're going to run into before you actually start implementing because otherwise you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think too, you know, as we talked about in the very beginning of this um, podcast, the reason why I like scoping reviews is the same reason why I like doing this podcast because I don't like reading journal articles. They did all the reading for us. And isn't that lovely? Yeah. And on the one hand, so it digests all this information, synthesizes it, but also provides you with the citations to dig up and find out the details if, if you're interested in any of these things. One thing that I would be really interested in, uh, that if they could do it all over again, and of course we can't do that, I would love to assign a different research team to do the exact same study, but to not do directed content analysis, but instead, instead of walking in with the CFER, I love the CFER, I'm not criticizing that, but but instead of walking know, Mike, in with like the sounds like you're CIFR, criticizing a CFER. <laughs> It's between you and me. Um, <laughs> instead of walking in with the CFR to walk in with just sort of a blank slate and try yeah. to code, try to code all these factors uh, without that, without that sort of driving it, I actually might think that they would still come up with something very, very similar to what they came up with here. Yeah, but I mean, it's interesting. It's the confirmatory versus exploratory factor analysis question, right? How much do you yeah. shove things into boxes because you know that's those are the boxes that everybody expects, or do you sort of open yourself up to new possibilities? Um, yeah, I think that's a, that's an interesting, an interesting idea. All right. Regardless, uh, Mike, what are some last thoughts you have about this, uh, really interesting paper? Man, I'm feeling great. I, I was so happy I walked through that cognitive restructuring. And so now no longer am I taking it so personally, uh, when, uh, I was interrupted by you earlier in this podcast. So oh, this I, has been, to me, this has been a very, very good experience. So I, I'm glad this is healing for you. I just want to point out, I, I've been constantly interrupting you and I'm not going to apologize now because now you have the tools to deal with it. It's true. So I actually that's feel relieved what, too. Actually, that's a good point. I do really like cognitive restructuring tools and pointing people towards it because it permits me to be uh, a jerk. So yeah, no, this, yeah. I, I prescribe them to all of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you liked today's podcast, post about it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, or name your digital therapeutic after it. That implementation science talking calm space. If you didn't like today's show, go process your feelings with an AI assistant. I'm on the social media platform, formerly known as Twitter, at that IS podcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. 
Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King, we'll catch you next time. endings right you ever listen to them you listen to that after the music starts or stop yeah do i i don't know if i've gotten actually oh yeah i should i should oh you're like i've never actually listened to the podcast